this is week four of our six, I believe it's six week class. And so the first week we talked about who God is and we talked about the, the, the tri-unity of God, how God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the, the implications for, for understanding the, the one and threeness of God. And then week two, Jordan walked through the nature of humanity, where we talked about uh, humans, humans are the imago Dei, we're made in the image of God, we're image bearers. And then he kind of went through original sin and total depravity, how those, how those two things uh, correlate together, but how they're a little bit different. Last week, Cody walked through salvation, how, and, and I, I love, I love the section on salvation. I was bummed I wasn't able to teach it, but really grateful for, for Cody and what he brought to you. But uh, highlighting the fact that the gospel is for us, but the gospel isn't about us. And that's a huge, huge thing to understand. I, I think it was easy, at least for me growing up in the church, where it was the, the gospel was kind of presented like the ultimate end of the gospel was God's love for me, which it's not that God doesn't love us, but God's ultimate love, his ultimate affection, his ultimate desire is for his own glory which he gets through expressing his love to undeserving sinners. And so there really is a both and nature to this that, that really changed the way that I read the Bible. When I understood that God's primary concern was the display of his own glory and that, and that that was the reason for his expression of love in Christ towards us through salvation. Uh, that just, that just changed it, especially changed the way I read the old Testament. So, um, the gospel is for us. It's not about us. Election and adoption are for the purpose of displaying God's glory, justice, grace, and mercy to the ends of the earth. And, and Cody kind of walked you through what's, what's referred to as that golden chain of salvation from Romans 8, 28 through 30, how we've been predestined, called, justified, and we, and we will be glorified. So uh, Cody did a great job last week uh, walking through salvation this week what we're doing is we're looking at the church and we're looking there's a lot of different directions we uh i could have gone with this a lot of nuances we're not really going to talk about um uh, church leadership so we're not going to talk about eldership deacons um pastors uh the presbytery stuff like that uh that's not the direction we're going um what we're talking about this morning is just three things. We're talking about the identity of the church, the mission of the church, and the practices of the church. So the identity of the church, like what is the church? The mission of the church, what is the purpose of the church now? And the practices of the church. So what what is the church to do when they gather together? And even, even within that third point, there's a lot of different things we could go into. I really appreciated Sproul's chapter uh, on like marks of a true church. Uh, and, I, and I totally agree with those. Um, we're going to specifically look at two practices this morning of, of what a church uh, ought to do when they gather together or, when, or as they function as a church. A few things before we start off, I always like to kind of pull the curtain back and show you, or at least tell you some of the resources that I've used in, in preparing the content for this teaching. And so one of those is, uh, it's, a, it's a little book, it's right here, called Church Membership by uh, Jonathan Lehman. This is the book that if you've ever been through our 
through our membership class. We, we ask people to read this book, particularly chapters one and three. Um, but the whole book is great. It talks about uh, church membership. What is church membership? Is church membership even in the Bible? And do we do we even see that? We're not going to talk a lot about membership today. I'll reference it. Um, but if you're really interested in, is church membership even biblical? This book right here. And I believe we have a copy of this in the in the Candeo Resource Library, if you ever find a way to break in nowadays. <laughs> so, uh, the second, uh, I think I left it at home. The second book that... This, this book is fantastic. This author is fantastic. He's, he's quickly become one of my favorites, Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a book called What is the Mission of the Church? It, I, haven't, I haven't read a Kevin DeYoung book that I haven't liked and recommended. So he wrote What is the Mission of the Church? He wrote a book called Crazy Busy, uh, which honestly is kind of like, if you're going to read a book during this kind of down season, read Crazy Busy. He wrote a book called uh, um, just do something, uh, discerning the will of God without uh, witchcraft and potions. And, <laughs> uh, and he wrote a, he, he wrote a bunch of books anyways, but for this, for this topic, what is the mission of the church in the footnotes of what is the mission of the church? I found this little gem. It's yeah, it's by uh, George Eldon Ladd called the gospel of the kingdom. And that specifically talks about uh, a theology of the kingdom of God. And so when we talk about what's the mission of the church, we have to also have a, a somewhat, a pretty informed understanding of what the kingdom of God is. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time throughout the New Testament. And it's easy, I think, to make some assumptions on what that is. George Eldon Ladd does a great job. And then the last one would be Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok. If you're wanting to talk, if you're wanting to understand more about church leadership and a biblical perspective of a healthy church and its leadership, uh, biblical eldership is a great book on that. So, like I said, I'm I'm gonna have to fly through this, and so throw your questions in the comments, and I'll pause at the end of each section to try to give some room to answer some questions. But so first, the church's identity. So, what is the identity of the church? So what is the church? Here's a simple definition for what a church is or for what the church is. The church is all believers in Christ at all times in all places. All believers in Christ at all times in all places. And notice that I said believers, plural, not believer, singular, because the church is, is a body with the churches often referred to as a body in the new Testament. As we get into, as we get into the book of first Corinthians, that's kind of the part of the issue that Paul is addressing there is that individual members of the church were one were wanting to function to the exclusion of the rest of the body. And I think there's kind of a, a prevailing thought. Um, it, it's probably older than me, but at least since I can remember my generation, kind of the older millennials are, can have this kind of attitude like, well, I don't need the church. I am the church. And it's like, no, you're not. You are, you are a part of the church, but you by yourself, just there sitting in your living room without anyone else, you aren't the church. 
like solely, you are a member of the body and a healthy body functions when all of its members are together because you've been gifted in a certain way. You've been, you've been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of it being expressed toward other believers. And so we can't think of the church in a purely individualistic way. Like we are, we are members, we are part of the body, but we by ourselves aren't the church. And so uh, all believers, uh, the church is composed. uh, So all believers in Christ. So the church is composed of those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and savior. The church is is, uh, composed of those who have have put their faith in the savior that God has sent, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, And so while there's certainly an element of the church being in reference to the corporate gathering, uh, this doesn't mean that all who are gathered are part of the church. We're going to get into that a little bit when we talk about uh, visible and invisible. But and here's what I mean. It's it's one's faith, not one's presence that makes them part of the church. And so someone can gather with the church and not be part of the church if if they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is where I'm kind of jumping ahead, but visible and invisible. So, so when, when we were able to gather as a, as a larger body on Sunday mornings, um, the reality is, is that there, there will be some within the corporate gathering who are gathered with the church, but not gathered as the church because they haven't yet put their faith in Christ. And so the church isn't just, isn't just the gathering. It's the gathering of believers, and so all believers in Christ at all times, all right? And this is important. So a number of years ago, a, a major British uh, newspaper published a poll where they asked, where they asked the, the British public this question, who is the most influential male figure and who is the most influential female figure of the last thousand years? So of the last millennium, who are the two most influential figures? And Based on this poll of the general British public, the most influential male figure was said to be Nelson Mandela, and the most influential female figure was Princess Diana. And, it, and it's interesting to think that the people that most, the people that they thought were the most influential figures of the last thousand years were people that a lot of us have had seen on television. And I think we're often tempted to think that the most important things that happen that or that have happened are those things happening to our nation in our time. We can get tunnel vision because we think, well, this is the time I'm living in. Uh, and so this has, this must be the most important point in history. Like that the most important days in history happen to be the days that we're currently living in when the reality is that God's greatest work isn't yet to be done but has in fact already been done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of humanity. And so the whole course of human history before Christ was leading up to his first coming. And now the whole uh, focus of human history since Christ is now leading to his second coming. And so right now we live in a posture of reflection and anticipation. So why do I say all this? Why do I, why do I give that example of the British newspaper um, and talk about kind of like the historical part? It's the reason, the reason is because the church is all believers at all times, which means that it's important that we don't live with tunnel vision as it relates to our faith or as it relates to our community of the community of faith to which we belong. Like God, God was working before we were born 
and God will continue to work after we're dead. And so I think sometimes we can get, uh, I'm speaking for myself here, it's easy to get a bit arrogant uh, as it relates to uh, our moment in history, thinking that this is the most important moment in history and God is going to do his most important work now. When, when that is, that is, that's throwing away, it's inadvertently throwing away all of the history up to this point. And so uh, those believers who have gone before us have experienced things uh, and that serve as a great cloud of witnesses. That's, that's why Hebrews 11, right? We get to Hebrews 11 and the, the writer walks through the, the, the faith story, the history of how God has worked in believers in the past for the purpose of motivating and spurring on and preserving the faith of believers in the present. And so we, we need to not get historical amnesia. Uh, that would be a detriment to our own perseverance as believers for us to think that the, that the only important ways that God has worked are the ways that he's worked now and to not look back and see how God has worked in the past. I mean, you get Hebrews 11 walking through how God has worked in the past. And then Hebrews 12, he goes, therefore, so because of how God has worked in all these ways, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clean, which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before us. So because we have a perspective of what God has done, we can have endurance for what he's wanting to do in us now. And so the church is all believers in Jesus Christ at all times. So be reminded of God's faithfulness to fellow believers throughout the generations, even leading up to us. And so here's what this practically means. It means get around people who aren't in your own age demographic. Both, both older and younger. Uh, I, I am always encouraged when I get around older believers uh, because they, they've experienced more life. Like they have more stories often of God's faithfulness because they've had more time to see God be faithful. And they've experienced more things that they've walked through that God has been faithful. And so um, though, I, though maybe I can identify in my interests with people who are similar in age to me, uh, it's really, really beneficial to my faith to get around people who are different than me, particularly as it relates to age. Um, and a lot of other experiences, but age in particular. Um, so get around believers who aren't in your own age demographic and get, ar uh, get around, th this will sound weird to say it this way. It is weird to say it this way. Get around a bunch of dead believers too. And the way you do that is by reading the stories of their lives, reading the stories of God's faithfulness, like read about saints who have gone before, not, not only Bible characters. I mean, that's mainly what Hebrews 11 is talking about people in the scriptures, um, but also biographies of missionaries, of preachers, of martyrs. Um, a couple books, if, if you're like, man, how do I come alongside some saints that have gone before me that aren't alive to tell their story? Uh, a couple books, 21 Servants of Joy, uh, John Piper compiled uh, some short kind of bi biographical sketches of, of some heroes of the faith. Uh, it's pretty thick, but you just have to remember it's basically 21 books put into one. So there you go. Uh, 21 Servants of Joy, um, Jesus Freaks. It, it, it's an adaptation of the Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, but it was uh, put together by DC Talk. If any of you remember that old school rock phenomenon. That was my favorite band in middle school. Uh, 
<laughs> um, for missionary bi uh, biographies uh, from a book called From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. Uh, so I-R-I-N here, I'm just gonna copy this and put it in the chat. Look at technology, wow. I learned that from Kendra, by the way. She's our, <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, though there's some resources uh, to read of saints who have gone before us. So all believers uh, in Jesus Christ at all times, in all places. And so the important part of this definition of the church is that the church is a global body. Uh, it's expressed locally, but the church is a global body. Uh, a guy named Richard Bauckham, who's a professor, or either is or was, I don't know where he's at right now, um, but at St. Andrews in Scotland, he wrote, a, he wrote a little book called The Bible and Mission, and he points out that uh, something about all the major world religions, he says that about 90% of Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia kind of in that like part of the world, 90%. And then about 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia and 98% of Hindus live in India. So major world religions are concentrated in the generally, I mean, really like 88% is the lowest number of concentration and that's for Buddhists, but 90%, uh, 88%, 98% major world religions concentrated in generally a particular geographical area. Whereas about 25% of the world's Christians live in Europe, 25% live in Central and South America, 22% live in Africa, 15%, uh, and it's, it's probably higher than that at this point uh, since when he wrote the book, but 15% live in Asia and 12 to 15% live in North America. It's certainly higher than 15% in Asia at this point. Um, and the point that he's making is that Christianity is the only major world religion that really is spread out. And he said, and he says this, he quotes this in his book, he says, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something about it. The reality is, is that, is that Christianity is uh, is a global religion, which then also means that the church is a global body. One of the most beautiful passages of scripture um, that, that I, I love to go back and read is Revelation 7. Uh, and it says this, Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice all together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We get this picture of, of a day coming where all nations, a number from every tribe, every language, every nation, we all, all of us are standing together as a united global body singing the same song that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Like the church is a global body. And why is this important? Again, we need to have a broader perspective when it comes to our view and our care for the church. Now it's certainly true that we experience the global body locally, but it isn't at the exclusion of the global body. And so uh, part of how this is, is necessary for us again uh, is, 
to expose ourselves to how God is working, not only in different generations, but also in different parts of the world. And this highlights the beauty of unity amidst diversity, that when we're grafted into the family of God, we're given a new identity, but we still retain the elements of our cultural diversity. Uh, and I never really caught this until a couple of years ago where um, that it is a, it is a, not only a beautiful expression, it's a biblical expression that when someone comes to faith in Christ, that they, that they still value, express, retain, um, develop, I don't, I don't know what word you want to put to it, uh, their cultural identity. And what we see here, it, what we see is in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Uh, he says, only let each person lead a life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Uh, this is my rule in all churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And here, this is verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 7. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity, for he was called in the Lord as a bondservant. Uh, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant. You are bought with a price. Don't become bondservants of men. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying um, that, that, though, that though you're, when you put your faith in Christ, that your highest identity has been changed as being one who was in Christ, that just because you are a believer, that doesn't mean that you, that you need to abandon everything else about the unique qualities of your culture. And so what does this mean for the church today? This means that there's no room for racism within the church, that there's no room for cultural superiority within the church, that there's no room for a, a sort of forced homogeny within the church when it comes to believers expressing their cultural diversity within God's beautiful design. And so if a church, churches are, are, are beautiful when they are multicultural, when when their highest identity is in Christ, but, but the other aspects of their identity as it relates to their culture uh, remains the same and expresses itself under their identity in Christ. And so if, if people dress different, eat different, talk different, uh, uh, value some different things, if, if community looks different, uh, uh, all of the nuances of, of the variety of differences between cultures is a beautiful expression in the church and not something to be erased. Well, well, you're a Christian, so why does that even matter? Like that, that shouldn't be the posture of believers as we think of the church. Um, we need to celebrate the beauty of the beauty amidst diversity, um, understanding that eat that our diversity sits under our our superordinate uh, identity in Christ. And so, so what is the church? The church is all believers in Christ at all times and in all places. Um, let me see here. Uh, a real quick, a uh, couple quick definitions, and then I'm going to throw it to some questions here. Um, so when you when we think of the church, the church is universal and it's local. 
and the church is also invisible and visible. Now those four things, uh, th those, are, those are two sections, okay? So the universal church, this is what we talk about uh, when we talk about the, the Catholic church. So when you read the Apostles' Creed, the, the Holy Catholic Church, that's talking about um, not the Roman Catholic Church. That's talking about the universal church. That's talking about the global church. That's the, that's the um, in all places aspect of the church. The church is universal, meaning global. But the church is also local. So the, the representative gatherings of the global church in specific physical locations. And so we can't gather as a global church. Revelation 7, it is when we gather as a global church. Until then, we gather as local churches under the authority of local leadership uh, as the global church is expressed locally. Now, this is different than the invisible and the visible church. And so the invisible church, when, when you hear that, uh, is in relation to the true nature of the, of the human heart. So I can't see who is actually a believer. Like I can't, I can't see it to the extent that I'm able to say that person is going to heaven, that person is going to hell. Now there are marks of, of someone being a true believer, and that's what we call the visible church. And so the invisible church is in relation to the true nature of the heart. The visible church is in relation to the expression of that faith in the context of the community of believers. So the visual church gathers to sing, to hear preaching, to celebrate uh, the sacraments. We'll get into that. Um, but those are some definitions. So I used to think that universal church and invisible church were the same thing, uh, and they're not. The universal church is the global body. The invisible church is, is in reference to the true state of the human heart, which only God can see. And so it's invisible to us. Okay. So that's point one. That's the longest point, by the way. So we're gonna we're on a downhill slope here. Any questions uh, to this point? I have a question. Yeah. Um, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> um, so just discussing what a church is, what the church is, um, what do you think about asking somebody to church when you know they are not a believer, they're not part of the body? Is that something that you should do um, before anything else? What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's absolutely appropriate to invite unbelievers to join the gathering of the church. And the reason is, is because um, I think that's a great context uh, where hopefully if your church is healthy, that that an unbeliever will be able to see the love that the church expresses towards one another. That's part of what uh, Jesus says that that they'll know they'll know us by our love for one another. And this is where the the di the unity amidst diversity is really great too, because unbelievers are able to see people who wouldn't normally associate together in the context of the church love one another because of their identity in Christ uh, that supersedes the rest of their differences. It doesn't eliminate the differences, but it supersedes it. Um, and I, I, there's other elements of the church gathering that are also evangelistic. So I think of obviously like preaching of the word uh, at times that's evangelistic that, um, that can, that can call the unbeliever to repentance and faith. Um, but also I think of, of uh, communion 
is something that uh, as we as we receive it together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an evangelistic element there. Uh, there's an evangelistic element to the corporate singing of the church. Uh, I remember when my sister was was still an unbeliever, that that was an incredibly powerful um, witness to her of standing in a room where uh, and reading these these like gospel truths being sung by the corporate gathering, like it stirred something within her. God was doing something in her as she as she even stood in the same room with the with the gathering of the church uh, that that had an evangelistic element to it, and I believe was part of not not the main thing, but part of her coming to faith. So um, yeah, though the church is all believers at all times in all places, um, I still think it's totally. Uh, I think it's awesome for unbelievers to experience that context uh, with the desire that they would come to faith from seeing that. So I think that's a great question. Okay. I can, I have a follow-up to that. Yeah. Um, I teach in a high school setting and I uh, am from a community with strong Catholic followers. Mm -hmm. So um, I hear a lot of my students speak poorly about going to church and any affiliation with church. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of them come from that background. So they don't know what church is like in a Candeo sense. Yeah. I didn't either before I came there. And so, you know, you almost have these two camps, the traditional and the um, contemporary. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's probably part of the diversity of it, but I don't know. Uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this right now, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, is, is your question kind of related to like um, breaking through to people who, who have had bad church experiences a little bit? Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Well, but just what is the difference between, you know, how those hardcore traditional churches look down on the contemporary services? Mm -hmm. Is that something to do with what you were talking about with the cultural diversity or is mm -hmm. that something different? That is an awesome question. So, yes, there is diversity even in um in church practice. So when I say practice, what I mean is, is church culture. So you have high church, you have, uh, so you think of a, a highly liturgical setting uh, like an Eastern Orthodox uh, church or maybe a Roman Catholic, something that's very structured, uh, very call and response. I mean, there, each church has its different flavors. Um, I do think there's an element of, of diversity there. Like, uh, what what I don't want to do, what I tell college students all the time when they when they're about to go back home for summer break, is I say, hey, don't go back to your church at home and become like a butthead just because you like Candeo better, right? Like, <laughs> like Candeo's cooler, the music's better, the way it looks is this, the way it sounds. Like, I'm like, I'm like, don't go back to your home church and like be a blessing and serve. And if there's aspects of it that you don't like, like love the people there. Now there, there are some churches that aren't healthy churches that, that I wouldn't just say they're different. I'd say they're probably wrong in some things that they're, that they hold to. And so there's a tension there for sure. Um, 
but as it relates to like reaching out to people who have maybe had a bad church experience, I, I, I would lean a lot into my personal relationship with them uh, before like trying to pull them into a totally different setting that they're, that is actually a barrier uh, to them hearing the message. Um, if they're so stuck in like a very traditional sense, I go, okay, that's fine. Like I'm going to try to meet them where they're at and lovingly come alongside them so that, so that as they walk with me, they're walk, like they may come with me eventually to a church gathering, not mainly because they like the style, but because they trust me and they know that I love them and that we can have a conversation about that. Um, but yeah, for someone who is, who it'd be a barrier for them to like, just jump right into the deep end and be like, Oh my gosh, this is so different. I can't even handle it. Um, I'm probably, uh, spending a lot of time with them in a smaller context. That might be a thing where, where they actually jump into a connection group before they ever jump into a larger church service. Uh, Cause I think that would maybe have a little bit more of a familiar feel than a traditional Roman Catholic service compared to a regular Candeo service that, that, that could be a jump for, for a lot of people. And, and I, I'm not mad at them about it. So <laughs> yeah, those are great questions. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the church's identity, the church's mission. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just fly through this. What I'm gonna do, and what I was trying to do earlier, um, I wrote a paper uh, in reference to uh, the Temple City of God. I'm gonna send that out to you, um, and it's essentially what I'm talking about here. So, what is the mission of the church? Um, the mission of the church is to Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the, name, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I command. Uh, that's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. That's the mission of the church, okay? Now, the reason I say that, uh, one, it's because it's the mission that Jesus gives the disciples immediately after his resurrection and before his ascension. And so it's kind of the last word that Jesus gives his followers, like now go do this. Um, and I would say that, uh, if, if you want to, if you want to hear more about this, uh, read, read that paper I'll send you and then read what is the mission of the church. I reference that book in the paper and also this, uh, gospel of the kingdom. Um, and so that, I think that would be helpful, but, uh, this is where the mission of the church and we, you've maybe heard this before is gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. But it's very, very important that it remain in that order because some churches can confuse the orders and go, well, they're not going to hear the proclamation of the gospel until they see the demonstration of it. But often what can happen is that all of a sudden your church uh, inadvertently or on purpose um, has as its highest as has as its highest goal uh, something like, like a social gospel where it's like, well, we're going to inaugurate the kingdom and we're like, we're going to try to alleviate human suffering. And it's in that alleviation of human suffering that people will come to understand the gospel. Um, and it, and some churches can get so focused on mercy ministries that it's to the exclusion of, of addressing the greatest need that a person has which is their spiritual condition. And there's not, there's not an either or here. It has to stay a both and, but it has to stay a both and in a particular order that as I serve the physical needs of somebody, 
that I have in my view that their greatest need is actually uh, one of a spiritual nature. Because big deal if I meet somebody's physical needs and totally neglect their greatest spiritual need, where they can have some alleviation of suffering uh, in the short term and enter into an eternity of suffering, having not been reached with the gospel. <laughs> so gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. So what this means is that churches uh, can be in the same location that uh, that churches can have the same mission, but different expressions of that mission. So here's what I mean. Candeo's mission in making disciples of all nations by baptizing and, and teaching to obey all that, that Jesus has commanded is not a different mission than Prairie Lakes' mission. Like it, like a gospel believing church, we've been given the same mission to make disciples. Now the way that we do that will look different and we'll have different focuses. We'll have different points of emphasis. We'll have different um, kind of things in view, like target targets that we're going after. And, and one of the things that, that I'm just like really jealous of is to not, is to not get, uh, too arrogant to go, well, the way we're doing it is the only way to do it. And if, since they're not doing it our way, then, then they're wrong and we're right. And I go, oh, well, <laughs> I want to have a tremendous amount of grace, of charity, of love uh, for the fellow churches in our area who are pursuing making disciples of all nations and baptizing believers, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Like if a church is doing that, they're just doing it differently. I go, praise God for the diversity of the church, even within a particular location that they're reaching people. We're not reaching that we're reaching people. They're not reaching, but together we're reaching as many people as we possibly can. And so there's, there's probably things of differences of belief of differences of methodology of ministry philosophy. There's a lot of differences that there's a reason why I'm here and not there. But that reason isn't because I necessarily think that they're wrong. It's just that I'm compelled for the vision and the mission of the direction that we're going in making disciples. And that doesn't necessitate that I all of a sudden get real, get a real bad attitude about everybody else. Right. I go, praise God that they're reaching people, that, that, that they're good at that, that we're not good at that, that they're doing that, and praise God that we're doing this. And so, um, again, there, there's, a, there's a whole kind of uh, um, storyline of Scripture as it relates to the, the mission of the church that, that you're going to get in the, in the Temple City paper. Um, and then I'll also send a paper on the kingdom of God, which is essentially a summary of uh, George Eldon Ladd's book, but um, I'll, I'll shoot those out so you can read those. They're, they're not super long. Um, finally, we've got like just a handful of minutes here. The church's practices, mainly what I'm referring to here, there's a lot of things sprawl kind of referenced in this book, um, but the two things I'm referring to are, are, the, are the sacraments or, or the ordinances of baptism and communion. Um, they're ordinances because we're commanded to do them. Uh, they're sacraments because they are, they are means of experiencing the grace of God to those who walk in obedience to him as he does them. Um, so when we talk about baptism, we're talking about believers baptism. Here's one of the great things. And you probably noticed this, uh, that Sproul is, uh, is an advocate for infant baptism. 
And it's a real fun thing when you disagree with one of your spiritual heroes. <laughs> and so, um, I'm, I'm, I'm often hesitant to this. Like there's things I disagree with, with RC Sproul about. There's things I disagree with John Piper about. Uh, I always feel like oh, I'm probably wrong. I don't know. Cause I'd so respect them, but I'm like, I just don't land where, where they do on some things. And when it comes to Sproul and this, I don't land where he does, uh, on infant baptism. Um, and so for me, what it highlights is, is highlight discernment while you're reading, even people that you love, even if you agree with 98% of somebody, if, if I, if you agree with absolutely everything someone says, uh, you're probably wrong or they're probably wrong. And if you disagree with hundred percent of what someone says, uh, you're probably wrong there too. So exercise discernment while you're reading, but, um, uh, yeah, so infant baptism, uh, a fun word. Cody was throwing out $5 words last week. Um, this week, you're $5, you got two $5 words. You got $10 worth of words here. Uh, infant baptism, uh, that's that's called pedo-baptist. So if someone's a pedo-baptist, that's infant baptism. Uh, believer's baptism is credo-baptist. Credo -baptist. So pedo-baptist, pedo, child, infant, credo is uh, belief. So think of the creed, a uh, statement of belief. Credo Baptist is believer's baptism. Um, real short for the sake of time, uh, I'm, I'm not compelled by scripture uh, to see baptism as being analogous to circumcision. Um, I, I, I understand uh, the connection that uh, those who advocate for infant, for infant baptism make, I understand how they point to, well, it's a sign of, of entrance into a covenant community. Um, but I go, the, the issue isn't whether or not they are at, they enter into that covenant community. The issue is how do they enter into it? And so for, for circumcision, the means was physical birth and therefore entrance into a physical covenant community. And the sign of that entrance was circumcision. Uh, the New Testament disconnects physical proximity from spiritual reality. And so you see that in Romans 9, 6 through 13, Romans 2, 25 through 29. Paul is straight. You see it in Galatians. Uh, I can't remember if it's three or four. Um, Paul is striving in the New Testament to, to redefine uh, the words Israel and Jew as not referring as the true Israel not being one of ethnicity, but one of faith. And so then Paul, then he talks about the, the circumcision of the heart and not with human hands. Uh, all that to say, um, I don't see circumcision and baptism as being so analogous uh, in the Bible that, um, that it validates infant baptism as an expression of entrance into the covenant community. I think believer's baptism is the primary expression since we've already been circumcised of the, in the heart as a believer, we now express that through water baptism as a believer. And that's always expressed through immersion. Um, infant baptism isn't explicitly prohibited. He says that in the book. Um, but what's normative in the new Testament is baptism as a result of faith, not as a result of birth. And you, you see the household baptism kind of uh, narratives in there. Um, I would just say, like, to say infant baptism is valid because households were baptized, I go, you're assuming that the household didn't come to faith. Uh, and that's not something that we see uh, in Scripture. So anyway, one thing R.C. Sproul and I would agree on is that uh, 
baptism is that water baptism never saved anybody. And so though even Sproul, when he's advocating for infant baptism, he's not saying that because that baby was baptized that they are now saved. Um, he would also advocate for believers baptism later. And so uh, that's where we agree on some things. Um, the Lord's Supper, ah, real quick, uh, <laughs> uh, communion is both uh, remembrance and celebration of what, uh, of what Christ has done. And, and it's meant to be communal rather than individual. So communion, what it does is it expresses our union with God in Christ and it's an expression of our unity with one another in Christ. If you were here in the fall, we went through a series on the church where we had a where we talked about the Lord's Supper. And this is the whole reason for Paul's admonishment to the believers in 1 Corinthians 11, what they were doing when they when they approached the table, when they approached the Lord's Supper, they had a total focus on themselves and a total disregard toward their relationship with one another. That's the issue that Paul was talking about, was when you come to the table, you're only thinking about yourself. You're not looking around to the other people who are to be enjoying and receiving this meal with you. And this is a little bit, this is a caveat. I'm, I wouldn't die on this hill, but it's, it's a reason I'm not a huge fan of communion at weddings, because often what it does is it, it's, it's isolating. It's, it's relegated to a personal experience between two people while everyone else watches, which is the exact opposite of what we see Paul advocating for in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's trying to make the table uh, inclusive to believers and aware of the other believers, not a personal experience. Now, for them, their personal experience was getting drunk and eating all the food, you know, but still the principle can apply that if we approach the table only thinking about, oh, this is myself and, oh, this is just a me and God thing and I, I, I have to like get tunnel vision, I don't have to look around, I go, no, like this is meant to be a communal uh, receiving and remembrance and proclamation of what Christ has done through the visual expression of uh, communion. And so um, because of this, uh, I, I think now our, our elders are, are in, there's nuances of position on this across kind of our elder team. So I'm just speaking for myself here uh, because uh, communion is to be a, a, a communal expression uh, I think that can, that the ideal context uh, to receive communion together is is in the church gathering that represents the least homogeneous gathering of the local church. And so, what I mean is the whatever context the church gathers, uh, make it the gathering that has the possibility for the greatest expression of diversity. And so, for us, that would be the corporate gathering. And so, because that's where kind of like the broadest uh, expression of people is in our church. And so I'm not, and again, this is where the nuance comes in. I'm not a huge fan of taking communion in, in my connection group for that reason, because our group looks way more homogenous than the broader gathering. And I want to be aware of, of more diversity uh, as, as I receive communion because I've got eyes for other people. Um, this is a little bit why uh, why um, the Candeo youth uh, don't. I don't believe they they uh, take communion together, and part of it is for this expression of uh, 
of the diverse, the unity amidst diversity. Uh, when you've just got a bunch of high schoolers taking it together, I think you can. It's not like it's not like it wouldn't be a sin to take it in your connection group or a sin to. I just go if part of communion is for is for me to look around and see the broader body of believers. Uh, it makes the most sense for that vision to have the greatest amount of diversity, at least possible within our context. And so that I put it on, I put it at like a preference level, probably uh, again, like it's not wrong. Um, but if, if I had to choose, I'd say, I think the ideal gathering for communion is the gathering that has the potential to express the greatest level of diversity that your church has, not the least, uh, dynamic range of diversity that your church has. So um, last thing, I thought this quote from J.I. Packer was great. So baptism and communion are visible signs. They're ways of acting out the gospel together. And J.I. Packer says this, he says, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, so the sacraments make it visible and God stirs up faith by both means. Sacraments therefore function as a means of grace on the principle that literally seeing leads to believing. I thought that was so beautiful as the preaching of the word of the, of, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, baptism and communion make the gospel visible, that they're visible expressions of the gospel, what Christ has done as we celebrate and remember them together. So that was a fire hose that the fire, the fire hydrant broke and like the water drained out of <laughs> out of the water tower on you guys any questions um i know some of you maybe have to jump off for the candeo kids stream that's great so i'm going to send those two papers out to you guys uh um read them or not they they were really helpful for me uh and even writing them to get a better understanding of um of god's mission for the church and what is the kingdom of god and what do we mean when we're talking about that um Next week, uh, there is no class because next week is Easter. And so uh, we're going to celebrate Easter together. Let that be our main focus. And then we'll come back on the 19th of April. And we're going to be talking about sanctification. So uh, how God works in the lives of believers to conform us uh, more greatly into the image of Christ. And so your chapters for the week of the, uh, the 19th are uh, chapters 86, 87, 90 and 91 and i'm going to do my best to condense my material to make it less fire hydrating i just get so dang excited these are great topics so we're all getting better right uh, <laughs> so cool uh, again, feel free to, to shoot any questions my way. Um, and if you have any questions after reading some of that supplemental stuff, uh, feel free to shoot it my way. So um, Candeo Kids is going on right now on the live stream. And then uh, the service starts at 10. So we'll see you guys then.